thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And this week, a public health officials preparing to clamp down on the sale of dangerous vapes. Also ahead, how scientists are cracking why some of us are magnets for mosquitoes and a very welcome floral addition to King's College, Cambridge. There are growing calls to clamp down on the underage sale and branding of e-cigarettes. A BBC investigation found that vapes confiscated from school pupils contain dangerously high levels of lead, nickel and chromium. Health officials are concerned. I've been speaking to leading public health expert and social policy advisor for the Scottish Government, Linda Bold, beginning with whether she was surprised by the BBC's findings. It's not terribly surprising to me because we always know with age-restricted products, you're going to have an illicit trade. And when you have an illicit market, you can have constituents in the products which can be harmful. The three things that have been identified in the lab, so lead obviously has a you know detrimental effect on the brain. That's why we banned lead in pipes and lead in petrol in relation to nickel and chromium as well. So those are class A carcinogens. And nickel, we know in particular the effects on lung health can be serious. And then chromium, of course, can be used in small amounts, trace amounts, as a supplement for people with diabetes and prediabetes. But at the higher levels they've found here, we also know there are effects on the liver and a number of potential health harms. So I think an acute exposure to the levels they've identified in the labs is probably not going to cause irreparable harm to young people, but chronic exposures would do. And that's a worry. So cracking down on illicit trade is a priority. We seem to be in a a difficult position with this, don't we? Because on the one hand, we've got positive health messaging around vaping. This is much better for you in terms of health threats than smoking. But on the other hand, it's being pushed at youngsters to addict the next generation of people who might have smoked, but instead they're turning into vapours. Yes, and we always knew this was a risk. I mean, we've been monitoring youth vaping from the beginning of the products being rolled out. And we were surprised that we didn't see a rise in youth vaping over the years because the US and others had expressed more concern about it. There was quite a bit of experimentation, but regular use was not going up. But then we saw this big shift really during the pandemic period. And with the new advent of these disposable devices, which are used by 69% of young people aged 11 to 17 compared to 7% in 2021, Um, they've clearly driven a big uptick. And the reasons for that are that they're cheap. The main disposables are about $2.99. You can get them for even cheaper. They're really bright. There's loads of flavors. They're marketed at the point of sale because we've removed the tobacco displays. So vaping products are very visible. And they're also discreet. 
So what we've seen is this rise, the rise in young people who used vaping once or twice is now up to 11.6%. That was 7% just in 2022. Current use, so people who say they're vaping at the moment, jumped up to about 7 8%. Um, last year and it sort of stayed at that level and that was a rise from the year before. We seem to be very slow off the mark on this though because I was having a look at what other countries are doing because other countries have also experienced a big increase like we have. You, you mentioned America earlier. I know Australia have, New Zealand have seen a tripling in the number of, of kids who vape in recent years. Their regulations and legislations appear to be far more stringent than ours though. Even China where many of these products are made and then shipped here for our kids to consume, they're completely illegal there. So why are we so slow to react? It's actually not that we've been slow, it's that we had a different paradigm. So most of these countries have a fear of nicotine. They don't prescribe nicotine replacement therapy to pregnant women, to people with coronary heart disease, to young people. You know, you can get NRT on prescription if you're age 12 or above in the UK. The priority is to get adult smokers to quit because we had the highest rates of smoking back in the 50s and 60s. And it's taken us decades to get down to lower levels. The priority is the smokers. We thought that other countries were panicking about the youth and imposed too stringent measures. But now the chickens have come home to roost, we're now faced with a, a rise in youth. So I think the policy approach that we took, which was to prioritise harm reduction and smoking cessation, we're now going to need to shift. The genie is really well and truly out of the bottle, isn't it? Can we get it back in, though? What can we do now so that these very significant numbers of young people, who many of them openly admit that they are consumers of nicotine because they're addicted... What can we do now to try to stop this getting any worse? I'm confident we can put the genie back in the bottle because we did it with tobacco. So we need to apply the same regulatory tools. And basically, you impose policy. So you could do the extreme and you could ban this category of products, disposable vapes, also on environmental grounds. They're thrown in the street. They're hugely damaging to the environment, incredibly difficult to recycle. Or you could be a little more subtle and say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to increase the price Increasing prices is a big driver for young people not to buy a product, but then you'd also need measures for the illicit trade because that can be an unintended consequence. Uh, you can do things about point of sales, so not making them as visible or accessible in shops. You can also take action on the labeling, the packaging, the colors, the flavors. The four P's I always go back to, product, place, price and promotion. Linda Bold in Edinburgh. The 76-year-old Russian scientist Anatoly Maslov is set to stand trial for treason there over claims that he and two of his colleagues have betrayed state secrets. The arrest of the three hypersonic missile experts has spooked the country's scientific community, which has warned that prosecuting them sets a dangerous precedent and risks damaging Russian research. It comes as the war between Russia and Ukraine continues to rage, with Moscow anticipating a huge counter-offensive by Kyiv's army. Mark Galliotti is an honorary professor at UCL, and he's the author of Putin's Wars, From Chechnya to Ukraine. Mark, what can you tell us about why these scientists have been detained? There are three essentially hypersonic uh, and aerodynamic specialists from the Kristianovich Institute of Theoretical and Applied Mechanics in Novosibirsk in Siberia. 
And the allegation is that at a conference in 2017, they passed classified information to Chinese scientists. And as a result of this, they are currently on, on trial for treason, which faces a life sentence if, if they're actually found uh, convicted. The point is, though, this is also just part of a trend. I mean, we've now had fully 16 members just of the Siberian branch of the Academy of Sciences have been arrested by the FSB, the Federal Security Service of late. So there, there clearly is a much wider crackdown going on. The way that science is conducted, though, internationally, is that scientists will go to other countries, they will share information, they will exchange ideas. Even in World War II, we had physicists collaborating and writing between Germany, America, the UK, for example, because science was, was going on despite war. That's how we do science. It's called peer review. So is there a sort of blurring of the boundaries here between what they're doing as legitimate science and what they're doing in terms of giving away state secrets? And is that the bone of contention? Really, what this is, is a clash between two cultures. You have the scientific culture, in, which in Russia, absolutely, as everywhere else, is not just uh, interested in, in peer review and cooperation, but precisely also does so on an international basis. And you, you travel to the conferences, you read the papers, you write the papers because you want to learn as well as share. And then you have the culture of the increasingly powerful security apparatus, particularly the FSB, which is firstly unaware really of how science works and doesn't really care either. Secondly, is gripped by a particular mood of paranoia these days. And thirdly, is also increasingly worried about what's meant to be Russia's great ally, China, because we've seen a lot of espionage related cases involving China of late. And so I think they've now come to the state where everybody who has any real contact with the Chinese is a potential traitor. And what have been the repercussions, ramifications and reactions from the scientific community in Russia? Well, interestingly, again, you know, we are told often that basically the Russian people are downtrodden and, and, and submissive to the state. But what's striking is actually the degree to which at the moment the scientists are standing up. They're writing open letters. They're petitioning local and national officials to try and not only get Maslov and his co-defendants um, freed, but also just trying to push back against this in increasing tide of prosecutions of scientists for doing science. So, you know, although it, it's not exactly the sort of thing which is going to bring crowds out onto the streets, but nonetheless, it is striking that the, the intellectual and scientific elite of Russia are doing what they can to highlight these cases and push back. And is the regime receptive? Well, look, on the one hand, the answer is obviously it needs the, the, the output of these scientists. You know, Putin has made much, after all, of, of, of Russia's leading edge weapons technology, including hypersonics. And that all requires a good, solid scientific base to, to get anywhere. But at the same time, unfortunately, the, the impact of the war in Ukraine, the sanctions and the, the general sort of alienation of Russia from the rest of the world means that at the moment, security apparatus are very much in the ascendant. So, I mean, what I'm hearing, frankly, from people I know in Russia is that, yes, they'll protest. They don't actually expect to have great impact. And to a degree, they are hunkering down and they're doing what they need to do to survive in this new era. And just very briefly, Mark, do, do we read anything into this about the war effort? 
Not so much the war effort, because in some ways, you know, the the gap between the theoretical and, and even applied science and actually the production of finished weapons is such that, in you know, the the current and just over the horizon weapons were really designed 10 plus years ago. It's more about actually how the war is changing the culture of Russia that is the real impact here. Russia expert and author Mark Galliotti. Thank you, Mark. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we'll be finding out why one of Cambridge's most famous colleges has decided it's no longer mowing the grass. Now, scientists think that they may have found why mosquitoes bite some people, but leave others alone. Apparently, it's all about the types of chemicals that are excreted by our bodies. The discovery was made by scientists at Johns Hopkins University, who built a large open-air arena in Zambia as part of their study. And I've been speaking to the architect behind the project, Connor McMiniman. We were really excited to develop a, a new system to decode what molecules emitted in our skin odour and breath are very attractive or perhaps not so attractive to the mosquito that transmits malaria throughout Africa. I thought this had been looked at in some detail in decades past, experiments where people were put in bubbles and all the smells that come off them were taken away and then presented to hungry mosquitoes to see what they did. Right. Yeah, there's been a a wide range of studies conducted over the past uh, 100 years or so. Most of these have been performed actually at small scales in the laboratory. And in this study, we built something much, much larger in a malaria endemic region of Africa in Zambia. So this is real world data. It's the mosquitoes and the people that would normally interact. Yeah. So to do this, we actually built an assay 2,000 times larger than existing laboratory assays. This is about the size, you know, if we think about area of two center courts in a tennis arena, basically a massive greenhouse facility. The arena itself is actually exposed to the elements. So wind currents can flow for this arena. The mosquitoes, which we place inside, are actually exposed to natural fluctuations in temperature and also humidity. And the foreside of this this massive greenhouse, we have positioned 15 metres away, one-person tents. And in these tents, we can actually place individual humans. We actually connect these one-person tents to the greenhouse by air conditioning ducting. Humans who occupy the tents fill the atmosphere of that tent with all of their scent, this rich bouquet of around 300 different chemicals that are released from the skin and the breath into the air. And then once it gets into the field cage, we have hot plates warmed to human skin temperature. And on top of the hot plate is actually an infrared camera, which monitors the landing of mosquitoes on this hot plate. The scent from those tents is actually wafted over the surface of this hot plate, if you like, mimicking human skin. We simply then record throughout the nighttime period how many mosquitoes land on these hot plates, and each of these tents will have individual humans. We can compete 
up to six humans sent profiles against each other all at once. And are you taking snapshots of what those smells are coming from each of the individual humans? So you've got samples you can then analyse. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. So um, uh, concurrently, we also actually sample the air from that ducting path uh, to gain a snapshot of what chemicals are being emitted in uh, the scent signature of that individual. And we can uh, quantify the number of mosquitoes that really love that scent or dislike that scent by recording the number of landings. By analysing that chemical sample, we can actually discern uh, what the chemical constitution of the human scent signature is that actually is associated with being highly attractive or not so attractive at all. Are there push-pull factors here? Are some people just really attractive to mosquitoes, others less so? Or are there people at the other end of the spectrum that are actively repugnant, at least in small terms, to a mosquito? (laughs) Right. During the initial validation of this system, we were really excited to see that night after night, we found individuals that were highly attractive to mosquitoes. In particular, we found one individual that was a mosquito magnet. On the other end of the spectrum, we found an individual that really had a radically different scent signature to the other humans. And this individual wasn't very frequently targeted by mosquitoes. What about the fact that we know that certain human conditions may also predispose people to being more attractive to mosquitoes? Malaria itself might do that. Pregnancy also allegedly does this. The comparative power of this system, the ability to test larger groups of humans all at the same time will really allow us to start to test some of these anecdotes and um, also observations from scientific data um, from the field that has been previously observed It's really worth noting that pregnant women are at a high risk of uh, sickness um, from infection with malaria. So that would be a really important one to test. Also, whether your blood type correlates with how attractive you are to mosquitoes. Other sort of anecdotes that get thrown around are, for instance, my blood is sweeter than another person's and therefore I'm more attractive to mosquitoes. We can actually now test whether the blood of individuals that seem to be more highly attractive, whether, for instance, they might have higher levels of sugars or other metabolites in their blood. And presumably, it's an opportunity to test novel ways to repel mosquitoes as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think this uh, system uh, has the potential to reveal new components of human scent that might be produced by the human body naturally or alternatively acquired in our diet, for instance, that might make us less attractive to mosquitoes. By identifying what those molecules are, perhaps we could find ways to add them to existing repellent um, formulations that we currently apply to our skin and, and buy from the shops that could enhance the activity and efficacy of those particular products. So I think this system also provides a really great um, way to test repellents and benchmark their um, activity and efficacy um, in an exposure-free and risk-free way for humans. Uh, Everyone hates being bitten by mosquitoes. Connor McMenamin there. And now to something completely different, and that's to the gardens at King's College, Cambridge, which have broken with hundreds of years of tradition by deciding not to cut the site's fabled lawn, which backs onto the River Cam. Over the past four years, the wild flower meadow has sprung up in its place, and biodiversity there is thriving. 
Our colleague Will Tingle took the short trip across town to find out more. I won't lie, I leapt at the opportunity to visit King's College and its wildflower meadow. And even from a distance here, it looks absolutely stunning with the yellows and reds and greens. But let's go down now and find out who's going to be taking us through the garden. Hello, hello. Yes, yeah, my name's Steve Cockhill. I'm the head gardener at King's College, Cambridge. And uh, as part of my responsibilities has been to see the development and uh, the flowering of this amazing wildflower meadow that we're standing in front of at the moment. Historically, the front of King's College, Cambridge here has been, dare I say it, fairly uniform flat and green for the most part certainly as i've ever seen it that's not the case now absolutely as we sort of trundle through into you know the 21st century there are other things that we need to look at you know we we need to look at putting back more into nature and that is part of this meadow that here we are right in the heart of cambridge and yet we have this amazing meadow that actually means so much to so many people over the last few years yeah, do you want to just sort of walk and talk us through it, what we're okay. looking at here? Yeah, okay, right. Well, well, the meadow itself, this is basically what you call a Lammas meadow because we cut it during Lammas time, which is, you know, first week of August. And uh, here we can see we have buttercups, we have oxeye daisies, we have selene doica, uh, the, the red campions coming through. We can see that we've the vernal layer of um, cowslips already fading away and they'll be seeding back into the ground. If you have a look around the outskirts, you'll see that we've also got uh, some poppies coming along and cornflower and corn chrysanthemum and a whole raft of uh, native grasses that make up this amazing matrix. And I'm sure we're about to cover the scientific side of what this all means. But just from your own perspective, this looks great. It invokes a great sensation just to be here amongst it. Well-being is a massively important thing. And meadows are wonderful because they have the wildlife component. They have the floral component, which is wonderful. You have the wind moving over the, the meadow, which um, in, in later when the, when the meadow gets higher, you can hear that wonderful susurration as the wind moves over it. And then we cut a path through. And then, you know, it's just great watching kiddies run through it, uh, sort of uh, wiping their hands along, you know, stroking the plants as they as Like they gladiator. It is. It is honestly just like Gladiator but without the blood, so that's quite good. <laughs> I've taken a message for us all there. I think so, yeah. We should probably move on to the science before that conversation devolves even further. And who better than the project's own Cecily Marshall? In terms of numbers of species, we found roughly three times as many species of plants and spiders and bugs. And we even found that bats are recorded three times as often over the meadow than over the lawn. We also have changes in the, the species composition, so the type of species that are using the meadow compared with the lawn. We're seeing grassland specialist species in the meadow now, so species that are rarer or declining, species that are characteristic of our traditional meadows. They're not species we've planted, they're species that just have arrived themselves, uh, which is really rewarding to see. And perhaps we shouldn't expect too much from a fairly modest-sized patch of lawn, but were there any effects on the carbon mitigation side of things? What we did find was reduced emissions from mowing and fertilising associated with a wildflower meadow compared with a lawn. So a fine lawn, like ours at King's, is conventionally managed by a regular regime of watering and also fertilising and some weed killer. So we have much lower emissions associated with managing the meadow. And that's good news for climate change mitigation. Did you see any effect on the temperature? Because we talk a lot about heat islands and how trees are important in cities because they help lower the overall temperature in urban environments. Was that the case here as well? 
actually what we found was that the wildflower meadows are more reflective than the remaining lawn is. Yeah, which would is probably a small effect, but it's associated with a reduced urban heat island effect rather than trapping it and holding it at ground level. Thanks to Cecily for that. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask Stephen just how you could create a wildflower meadow of your own at home. You can have a wildflower meadow in your own garden, no problem at all. The first tip is to, you know, if you've got a lawn, are there areas of the lawn that you can just stop mowing? Because if you do, then you might see all sorts of interesting things coming up through the lawn that you never knew you had. Then, if you want to destroy your lawn in order to grow a little wildflower meadow you can use plug plants little plug plants in a, in little containers that you can then sort of plant into an area of lawn that you've set aside and that will allow you to establish a meadow without sort of wholesale destruction to start with and then of course you can actually dig an area up cultivate it and then um, sow one of the many different wildflower seed mixes that there are available out there because, you know, it's best to have local seeds. Seed uh, from plants that are growing in your region or your area or indeed in your county because you know that they're going to look right and they also know that they've got the characteristics that you need to grow as well. It's very important. So there you are, science in your own backyard. Thanks to everyone for hosting me. It was a great privilege to see this in action. And I speak for all of us when I say we're very excited to see what's next. Our own Will Tingle, and you can find out more about the Wildflower Meadow at cam.ac.uk. And now it's time for Question of the Week, and James Titko is taking on this question sent in by listener Douglas. Are biofertilisers an answer to solving the use of chemical fertilisers? Are they more advantageous in any way? And it's a very pressing question, Douglas. One University of Cambridge study found that, along with manure, fertilisers are responsible for emitting the equivalent of 2.6 gigatons of carbon per year. That's more than the shipping and aviation industry combined. With me to explain the role biofertilisers might play in bringing this down is Giles Oldroyd from the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Hi James, this is indeed a great question. Most fertilisers are nitrogenous, that means they contain a lot of nitrogen, and we use an awful lot of energy to generate those nitrogenous fertilisers. Most of this energy is derived from natural gas, which makes fertilisers very costly. The application of fertilisers also causes the release of nutrients into the natural environment that depletes biodiversity. Biofertilisers instead make use of the ability of fungi and bacteria to capture essential nutrients, especially nitrogen and phosphorus, from the surrounding soil and air. Some species of bacteria possess an enzyme capable of converting molecular dinitrogen in the air into ammonia, a reactive form of nitrogen that plants can use. Some species of plants can form associations with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria, as well as with species of fungi that help the plant capture sources of nitrogen, phosphorus and water from the soil. Biofertilisers make use of these microbial associations, either directly with the target crop plants or with co-cultivator plants that can form the associations. The stumbling block is the levels of the nutrients one can currently deliver to crops using biofertilisers. At the University of Cambridge, we're currently undertaking field trials looking at varieties of barley that get hypercolonized by the beneficial fungi, as well as working really hard to try to transfer the association with nitrogen-fixing bacteria to crop plants that cannot currently do it. 
So, Douglas. Yes, indeed. The use of biofertilizers is advantageous over chemical fertilizers owing to their reduced burden on the environment. Some fungi and bacteria form associations with plants and give them the nitrogen they would otherwise be getting from chemicals, which are carbon-intensive to produce and detrimental to the environment once they're applied. Biofertilizers aren't currently as efficient as they could be, but there are promising developments in this highly active research field. Thanks very much to Giles Oldroyd from the University of Cambridge for helping James Titko there with that question from Douglas. And tune in next time when we'll be attacking this question from listener Gary. And it's a good one. He says, suppose I built a time machine that can transport me one decade, one century or one millennium into the past or into the future. Would I, with all my typical 2023 germs, including bacteria, viruses and fungi, landing in an urban setting become the starting point for an epidemic? Or would I quickly die because of the pathogens there that are not common today? Find out next time. And that's all we have time for this week, but do join us on Tuesday when we're going to be looking at allergies as hay fever season strikes. We're asking, how do allergies work and why are some of them so hard to shake off? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.